three-dimensional transforming musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And a happy Christmas Eve to you all. Now, I realize that it's been almost a year since our last reading from Leonard Picard's marvelous book, and my guess is that these days have been as difficult for you as they've been for many of us. Hopefully, you'll find a few answers that are going to bring you a little peace of mind as we listen to this reading of Chapter 5 from The Rose of Paracelsus. Now, here is the Lakey Sisters podcast of Chapter 5, which includes a personal message from Leonard. Hello, and welcome to the Rose of Paracelsus podcast on the Psychedelic Salon. I'm your host, Kat. And my name's Alexa. First off, we'd like to thank our listeners for their patience with us as we roll out this project. Over the course of 2021, Kat and I have both undergone career changes and cross-country moves. Currently, I'm recording from Asheville, North Carolina. And I'm broadcasting from New York City. We're starting this chapter off with a very special message that I recorded with William Leonard Picard himself while he was in town to speak at the annual Horizons Perspectives on Psychedelics Conference. Leonard will give you a brief update on his current situation as well as a few personal anecdotes on this titillating chapter. After that, we'll dive into the chapter itself, which was recorded by the lovely Gaia Harvey Jackson of the UK Psychedelic Society. Once the chapter concludes, we'll wrap the episode up with some commentary by a pioneer of the Whole Foods movement and longtime friend of the Rose of Paracelsus podcast, Gregory Sams. And now, without further ado, here's Leonard. Hello, dear friends. This is Leonard. Uh, Just saying thank you to everyone for the many kindnesses shown to me. Uh, during the long, dark years. Um, I was released um, July of 2020, but this is a Christmas gift uh, uh, for listeners and readers. Uh, Some anecdotes about the writing of the chapter. Um, The first version of The Rose was written in pencil, uh, second version as well. The first version uh, took a year, and uh, looking at the nature of the writing, uh, decided that it was inappropriate and threw it away. I began again on the almost 700-page manuscript, again in pencil. And the first chapter that I wrote was actually chapter 5, this chapter, uh, using... Uh, methods and insights and memories that I had uh, recalled uh, from traveling the world with uh, the characters V1 and V2, which are not fictional. Uh, Listeners may notice that the chapter has a strong erotic component of the love between V1 and V2 and the sharing of that. 
But the essential teaching of the chapters and not that great and sublime affection but if you will the exorcism of the young woman by V1 and V2 uh, in the throes of their passion if you will A suggestion that um, certain states of addiction among certain individuals uh, might be addressed by such almost ecclesiastical medieval methods. A rarity, one might agree, but real in certain contexts. Uh, I describe these events actually to to Anne Shulgin in her later years and Anne replied uh, uh, in the affirmative. I would suggest that there are two other chapters on V1 and V2 and listeners should read those before making any conclusions. Nevertheless, this is certainly one of my favorite chapters. And the gentle scenes such as the little girl taking the angel wings at the wedding and the angel wings being planted by V1 and V2 in the narrator, the narrator's suitcase. That's a foreshadowing of what will come in the readings. So simply sending great affection and love to many friends and my gratitude for the kindness is shown to me during the years of horror. Thank you. Gaia Harvey Jackson is the co-director of the Psychedelic Society UK and facilitator of women's empowerment. She runs courses, retreats, and training programs which support women to step into their power and find belonging in community. Gaia's practices incorporate tantra, ritual, psychology, and embodiment, creating spaces for deep transformation across mind, body, and soul. Gaia is currently recruiting for women's leadership and facilitation training online starting February 1st and Ignite Wild Women's Retreat from March 4th to the 7th in the UK. Find out more about Gaia's work at GaiaHarveyJackson.com. Here is Chapter 5, titled The Rhythm Section. I passed in Berlin, beneath the chariots and spears, the muscular equine necks, flared nostrils, and lavish manes of war horses in the quadriga of victory atop the Brandenburger tour. From behind my driver, as the evening approached, I could see the shadowed and debauched provocations of the verdant Tiergarten begin to manifest along its hidden walkways. The chauffeur, with his fine leather gloves, soon neared a small manor several kilometres off the Kurfürstendamm. 
I had been summoned by an unknown woman while in the International Transit Lounge at Templehoof. She had a cultivated delivery, evocative of scholarly Prague salons, but underlain with the low husk of one still unsated after weeks of unrestrained ardour. The manor and its ten-hectare park were, as my driver disclosed with a subtle yearning, long of German nobility. It was rumoured to host on the equinoxes pagan celebrations or club échangistes by European hedonists with lineages in the Almanac de Gotha. At the assigned moment, I stood with uncertainty in the estate's entryway, until staff guided me within and then retreated. Designed by Lagerfeld, the marble foyer was a harlequin chessboard. Its rococo amoise beneath cool blue bas relief all offsetting sitting rooms redolent with mysteries and candlelight and myrrh. Within its stately silence, I was startled to hear from behind the thick doors of a distant suite overhead a woman's muted but long and almost religious ululations. Her frenzied spasms consummating some unimaginable pleasure. My consciousness quickened. From these aspects of possible felicities, I assumed Vermilion was near. I walked hesitantly to French bay windows, opening upon a broad stone veranda. In the far uncultivated gardens of a too early spring were gladioli and blood-red daffodils and a German wedding. The bride and groom had faces flushed with joy, while a soprano sang from Bach's wedding cantata the aria Wenn die Frühling schlüfte. Rose petals were strewn in front of the Holy Sacrament by six little girls twirling about in flowers and lace, arrayed as angels, each with feathered wings and a halo. One small girl was summoned by her mother a classic Teuton, with blonde plaits, curled upon her head in the Germanic manner. The matron was a fulsome Amazon, in white bias-cut satin, that cleaved her hips, clinging from ankles to her high neckline, her figure proud, as if she were the manor's chatelaine. She kissed the girl's upturned face and pointed 
to the foyer. Within minutes, this chosen of the seraphim, less than a metre in height, and with a winsome innocence, entered the hallway with hesitation, proceeding in wide, delicate arcs, and arriving tentatively before me. She presented a lilac-scented billet doux, remarking with a little courtesy, Pour vous, monsieur? Then rushed away in a blaze of small petticoats and flying pumps. Her tiny anklets were pink diamonds over blue argyle, like the last descendant of the clan of Campbell. I sighed at being surrounded again, submitting to their exquisite surveillance. The unsigned note, in calligraphic vermilion ink, from an antique fountain pen, instructed me to leave my valise and proceed to the Wilhelm suite. I did so, guided by a distinguished elderly major-domo in white tie and tails, who ushered me into an antechamber, then bowed and left, beneath a shaded lamp and in a heavy gilt frame was a fine reproduction of two women reclining au naturel, Gustave Courbet's Le Sommet. On the opposing wall was a trompe l'oeil replica of Veronese's beautific St. Catherine, dreaming by a window. I had entered some realm of the sacred and profane. The suite beyond was expansive, with clusters of Louis's chairs and commodes, and one wall of French windows open to the gardens beneath. There was a large tapestry of enchanted and horned bull antelopes, reminiscent of the woven La Dame à la Lecorne at the Musée de Cluny. An elegant figure of a man entered, beckoning me to sit. He spoke English with a Schweizerdeutsch overtone, but claimed to be American through his teens. He had tight curls going to grey and lithe leanness to his form. Although he displayed perfect manners, one sensed an undercurrent of absolute seriousness, tempered only by a pronounced attention to the sensual. He offered pomegranate juice in an angular Steuburn martini glass, then sat and exchanged trifling cordialities 
as the wedding culminated to Lowen Green. Below us, after all of the girls liked winged fairies, ran joyously to the bride's embrace. The Berliners' bourgeois sensibilities soon dispersed the party happily to their beds. The velvet fingertips of late dusk began caressing the darkening topiary so that we were alone in emptiness and solitude. Vermilion was dressed entirely in black. From his Italian slippers to his custom shirt from Turnbull and Asser. His voice was low and relaxed. His conversation indirect. He was abysmally sophisticated, almost teasing, but respectful and gracious. On his nearby escritoire, I saw editions of Pliny's Naturalis Historia, Volume 6, De Quincey's Writings, and excerpts from Seneca. Yet he seemed not a feat, but quickly capable. In the service of enlightenment, or his Sybarites, of the staggeringly primitive. I understand your hike into Salzburg was challenging, he said, and that you enjoy Mozart. Without waiting for a reply, he offered a recording of the abduction from Seraglio. The erotic scent of early orange blossoms wafted through the open windows. In the lessening light, it became as if we awaited our reward of Oris in paradise. The flowers ripe promises like Islamic perfumes. Indigo had cautioned me of the contact high from the six. With each chemist's teachings, that of his first knowledge, after walking on the surface of the sun. Crimson was obsessed with security. Indigo with ritual preparation of Eucharists. But Vermilion with his electrical presence his knowing and unhurried silences presented a moral atmosphere of some inevitable abandonment into which I was being procured. There was a sensation of the long dormant Kundalini at the base of my spine, uncoiling with fire and life, from my tongue to my genitals. At its writhing like Eden's serpent, I knew this interview would be like no other.
I attempted to recover, but my voice had become hollow, giving me away. You do counter-surveillance of downstream distribution? I persisted, recalling Crimson's and Indigo's description of him, but transparently avoiding mention of his voluptuous methods. Our operatives, only those first illumined, are trained from late adolescence in the arts. We can access the secrets of most men and women, from the aristocracies to rough underground trade, from stoned music tours to insular government offices, from esoteric military laboratories to refined diplomatic circles. We often employ elaborate variants of KGB honey traps, although more professional from being sacrosanct. How did you choose this speciality? Upon my first survival from weeks of synthesizing 10 million doses, all alone and far from human closeness, I was nursed in the arms of several sisters of the Sapphic Arts, a coven of models who searched and found me wandering lost one night in Amsterdam, near the Udesitz Vorburgwall, many years ago. We now use protective measures. I could not help but ask, did you, do you have sex with them? For long periods, nothing. Then, constantly. Every day and night as a lifestyle. At the slightest whim of any party. I in their service. They in mine, if they wish. All free and without shame. Master and servant, interchangeably body worshippers, devotional yogis and yoginis, the special dynamics of queen and king, menage a trois, a quatre. The sisters are, of course, far more active than men dream, men frequently being so trivial. We live for months, consuming little but each other, travelling about the hemispheres, occupying hovels and castles for a few nights, seeking the extremes of our human experience, our only comfort one another. This stunning admission 
was offered unaffectedly, in the hushed tones of a devoted choir boy, his face clear before the Mother of God. I wanted every detail. You were disorientated until such friends found you. Yes. Planetary quantities consume the soul, the intellect. They are not the single doses used for introspection and ascetic enhancement. Only a handful of people have been in the presence of such emants. Indigo lived through the greatest human exposure in history. Uh, I, I wasn't aware. Ask him of that lucid night, when the ellipse of his orbit next intersects your path, Vermilion suggested, bemused at his humorous aside. So it's not lethal at any dose? None of which we are aware. We know of police and addicts in sufflating lines of LSD, thinking it was cocaine they had stolen. A 50 milligram line could be a thousand doses. Indigo was exposed to millions of doses within seconds. Perhaps under the red light of an operating lab? I suggested, recalling Indigo's descriptions. Like working on a planet near Betelgeuse? I rather think of it as the scarlet light of Antares, but with two white consorts, Vermilion replied, granting a rare smile. The sound of a woman in primal ecstasies split the dusk, her lengthy and repeated contractions just behind the suite's walls. It was far too feral, even guttural, to be the licit nuptials of some shy young couple on their marriage night. As it continued, I gripped the arms of my chair and looked wildly about, starting to rise until Vermilion, with his imperturbable self-control, held me steady. An almost Arabic wail slowly transformed into sobbing invocations of Oh, Dio mio! Then into low, vulnerable moans, finally extinguished by the whispering comforts of others. Vermilion's eyes were gleaming, yet tranquil. A period of silence. The running of a tap. A girl's voice 
singing a sweet lullaby in Ukrainian. Laughter and adorations followed until at last I heard a brief benediction in Latin chanted seriously. Vermilion continued to watch my face. I had no resources for these events and was speechless. An impeccable matron of Mediterranean descent appeared from the bedroom with a sultry air, tugging the hem of her tailored suit below her knees. Her derriere was round and firm as an apple. I glimpsed through the door sumptuous matrimonial sheets. Stealing a glance at me, she blushed to her crown, closed the door, pulled down the net of her black cloche hat, and with a slight awkwardness, adjusted the straps of her Gucci pumps. With her flawless oval face and jet black hair, she could have been the wife of the Italian council in Berlin, defying prudence for her obvious preferences. She wore Bulgari rings and had a black snakeskin clutch in one hand. A wedding band scintillated. Grazie, professor. She managed hurriedly leaving the suite without another look. Signora, Vermilion replied, standing, as was his chivalric nature. He seemed to host an international beau monde in his intrigues with sensuality and surveillance. I was beguiled by the splendid openness and seductive air of his ways. His framing of natural drives with devotional practices. But at a loss to explain such flagrant indiscretions to Harvard. The bedroom door opened and closed silently, as if by the passing of a monastic nun detaching herself from meditation and prayer. An electrifying haute couture model emerged somewhat dishevelled. She was bare but for scraps of diaphanous attire stretched across her narrow hips. Her abdomen was hard and sculpted. Her high, small breasts carelessly displayed nipples of couleur de rose. Bewitching.
impossibly tall and with marvellous skin. She, with a queenly air, strode across the suite. With close-cropped, pale blonde hair, as though from eternal days at the Arctic Circle, she had blue, intelligent eyes that seemed to reflect unspeakable tragedies and glories and insensate lust. Vermilion and I stood in a form of veneration while I was introduced. I was flustered by her effective nakedness and direct, inviting gaze. Rather than an embarrassed volubility, I grew uneasy. He turned to me. This is Polyhymnia, our muse of sacred song, Vermilion remarked. We may think of her as V1. She held my hand in hers, a strong, vibrant grip beyond the perfunctory. Her fingers were hot and scented with musk, although her body's fragrance was that of an ethereal eau de Gavinci. I bowed reflexively, trying to contain myself, my face uncontrollable and uncertain of its expression. With reserved courtesy, I resorted to banal etiquette. I, I am I'm so pleased to meet you. Her attitude was not salacious or frivolous, but that of a distinguished woman neurologist examining a patient, so that I could not flee from her unnerving presence either by sophisms or idle banter. Merci, infiniment, she replied, in the tone of one's most earnest lover, dropping the slightest curtsy I dared not admire. Et toi aussi. I was transported and thought of Schiller, her movements are so mysterious, and her figure so elegant. Who can she be? The intimacies had begun. Excusing herself with no attempt at modesty, she assumed the bench of a harpsichord before the flowing draperies of opened windows. Her head turned into the air, feeling for the movement of the night. She carefully sorted a vase of buttercups, 
peonies and dahlias. As a Zen priestess in the flower arranging practice of Hibana. At the aesthetic perfection, she approached the sheet music and began to pick her way through a bark cacon, then a saraband, settling more confidently upon transposing a Chopin nocturne from memory. A scarcely decent demigoddess, her erect back revealed the delicately inscribed muscles of a gymnast. Her hips had low dimples in alabaster skin. Her waist narrow and curved, like a precious violoncello. She was lean with some unsated hunger. She had lived a century ago. She could have been an English ballerina in Monte Carlo before which transfixed Rajas hopelessly tossed Buddha's eyes. During the nocturne, Vermilion disclosed some of her background. Her physical attractions may be deceptive. She qualified in medicine in St. Petersburg, neuroscience doctorate at Leipzig, research in Gdansk. For periodic amusement, she danced at the crazy horse, refined her desires, did fashion from Copenhagen to Helsinki. Her cluster of bisexual models prefers a rare psychedelic. And for the six? She studies sex and the energy around it. Accomplished at the recruitment of female operatives in governments, as Cobalt may request. On occasion, she does exorcisms of the infected. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, did you say exorcisms? Removal of the vampire's teeth. Women cocaine addicts, preferably. She remembers the enslavement and degradation of many innocent souls. Although Crimson had alluded to the devastating epidemics of cocaine and methamphetamine, I was confused at first by Vermilion's reference to absolute evil, and so asked of a different threat. As we contemplated the perilously attractive Sylph V1, my efforts to maintain a neutral artist's over had become futile. I felt the sheer insolence of desire and envy, but also the tragic fragility 
of his beautiful arrangement. The ticking of Indigo's chronometer had awakened a continuing paranoia for myself in their proximity. But most of all, for them. They were hurtling toward martyrdom. Are you not afraid, I proposed, that it all might end? We follow Crimson's Washington rules and meditate and pray. We rely on essential goodness. And I have six eyes. His statement was perplexing. Until from the same bedroom as V1 and her dear Italian minion came forth yet another vision. The almost identical twin of V1 manifested. A glorious nymph of Athena, varying only by slightly darker hair in a short-eaten crop and a tigerish look. She wore Christian Louis Vuitton six-inch heels in red and a wide choker of pearls, but otherwise floated in the merest wisp of crepe de chine and was essentially unadorned. With immaculate politeness, she nodded, passing by me so closely, her fragrance of honeysuckle blended with a magnetic warmth. She strutted boldly to V1, who hesitated in the Chopin, to raise her lips and receive a long, adoring kiss. Pressing their heads together, they turned their open faces to us and then lifted their veiled eyes, revealing themselves to be lost in the secret apostasies of their hearts and minds and loins. At this intimate disclosure, they sat and slowly resumed the nocturne playing together. Madame is our muse of memory, Vermilion finally said. She is Nyamosani, or, if you will, V2. Remarkable similarities, I oafishly observed, already trapped in their gifted allure, privately imagining the heated perfections of their late evening's soissons V2 has an eidetic memory, Vermilion continued, quite aware of their effect on me. She is a favourite of Magenta, who insists the cortical revolution 
will be driven by substances enhancing learning and memory and libido. She helps penetrate laboratory groups inaccessible to the public and monitors the emergence of new structures. Training, I managed tersely, focused on the swan-like backs of the graces. Dual citizenship at birth. Canadian through Kuwait Rosemary, then Ukrainian, educated in Kiev and Warsaw as an intel analyst, trained in the subset of espionage by inactive elders of the GRU, the Glavnoya Razvedi Vatelnoya Upravleni. She is also of great value to Cobalt. She plays speed chess, Fischer random chess, 3D chess, Kriegspiel. Like V1, she is an urgente provocatus. His Russian indicated complete familiarity with the idiom. What sort of espionage? A rare form. Spying at the edge of science and mathematics. She entertained graduate students close to iconoclast Grigory Perelman. Subsequent to his resolution at the Poincaré conjecture. The same with colleagues of Andrew Viles at Princeton. After the proof of Fermat's last theorem. She enjoys Asian women students, those near Shinkimokizuki at Kyoto, to anticipate the impact of his ABC conjecture. She entertains the odd Silicon Valley billionaire, preferably their wives, these suggested to her even more important cortical concerns. An extraordinary array of beauty in mind. They're almost too perfect. As we watched V1 played the G-cleft, upper scale melody with her right hand, as V2 played the C-cleft, lower scale accompaniment with her left. Their free hands moving across each other's thighs and pulling them closer. They were as a single being. Abandoning my reserve, I could only imagine one court within their private symphony of desire. We are bound by their intellect, Vermilion observed astutely. Their bravura and their devotion. Beauty, we have found, is so common 
I was at the centre of some sensual cyclone, a vortex of carnality. Exhilarated by those immodestly adorned, and being invited, it seemed, to obscure pleasures and secret nudities. The Chopin piece ended. V1 and V2 walked holding hands to Vermilion, each kissing him with unalloyed desire. The shadowy outlines of their silver bodies showed a prelude to more sensuous visions. They sat beside him, V2 in the midst, and all three turned to look directly at me. They said nothing for long, uncomfortable moments. Transfixed within their torchlights of attention, I could not move or entertain some nervous utterance. Glancing guiltily at the women's fine breasts. V1, without breaking her gaze, her eyes, now imperial blue, reached with tantalising slowness and parted slightly one of V2's legs. Their ivory leanness promising even headier delights. Vermilion, with the lightest touch, seemed to open delicately V2's other leg. V2, her eyes ultramarine, tensed, as V1 began to stroke the inside of her thigh. Finally submitting, her eyes clouding as she looked at me. She responded with slowly increasing urgency. The contact high from the threesome was of celestial import. A glorious nimbus of light radiated outward from the edge of their faces and embraced them. I heard both women speak distinctly, although their lips did not move. Would you like more juice? Above them, the ceiling of cerulean blue broke into displays of dryads and naiads, tree and fountain nymphs, and sons of Poseidon with triton shells. V1 and V2, sitting with their legs wide and overlapping, pleasured each other before me. Their eyes now aquamarine, now with diamond radiance.
They became expert witches, perusing abstruse treaties on potions, their arms multifold like Hindu deities. Spectra of erotica displayed, reflected in infinite mirrors, as V1 and V2 became the newly born. Schoolgirls, mothers, toothless, wrinkled crones, then offal and stench and dust. Their beauty became the face of God. Then starlight, so holy, I was prostrate. Their perfumes and voices were of the harlot goddesses at the crest of fabled Mount Maru. Made of blue sapphires and rubies, then transformed into the prayers of revered nuns in demure robes, kneeling before Christ incarnate. Their frantically copulating hips were orgiastic with the cries of birth and death. Their climaxes like the crash of majestic breakers on pristine shores. The silent expansion of supernova. The picosecond of universal creation and the casting of worlds. As their hands moved between their legs in driving concupiscence, their faces became vulnerable and unblemished in adoration of the Godhead. Fields of lush breasts and hardened milky teats roiled to the edge of reality, and thick forests of painted fingernails protruded from the wet-lipped earth. I felt as though the sky were my lover, and I, rampant with ardour and immortality, rent the moist fields with bolts of lightning as the winds scattered life and the cries of those to be born echoed through eons undreamed. Before me, the women's beauteous minds and bodies seemed the apex of evolution. Their DNA entwined irrevocably through Stone Age fires and billions of childbirths until I felt at last the yearning of all lost loves and saw its manifestation as a pure young girl in a long dress with broad hat and ribbons 
wandering far from her thatched roof cottage. All alone among the hedgerows, on a grey and desolate moor. Fair and sorrowful, remembering her missing lover with all her secret heart. I don't know how long I was gone. In the end, there were suddenly no naiads on the ceiling, no dryads, no triton's horns, just the sound of the late evening breeze across the gardens and the connubial scent of flowers in efflorescence. Sipping tea primly from translucent china cups, V1 and V2 comforted me as if I were an unruly schoolboy lost from his studies. They acted as though the second coming had not occurred before us, while I perspired lightly and could not find a voice. They wore antique buttoned leather shoes and long blue calico dresses with embroidered cotton to their necklines. Without makeup, dressed down and plain, like Mennonite school teachers. Yet they had the same eyes, the colour of sapphires. They both carried the Mennonite Bible still not moving their lips, they posed a difficult question. How often can you come? Before I could respond inappropriately to such virtuous discourse, Vermilion interceded at last, inviting me to a window to take the air and settling me gently. The women in their long skirts began to walk slowly to the bedroom, holding my eyes. Worried at this juncture, I addressed Vermilion in a voice now muted and hoarse. Where where are they going? To save a soul, they replied. To my distress, they left the bedroom door slightly ajar. Vermilion held me by the far window, lest I, in my disinhibitions, stumble to join them. He ruminated on arcane aspects of Eros in his scholarly asides. There were, of course, histrioni or abysmali who refused Christian dogma and believed that one has a 
double in heaven, who did good deeds and was sanctified if one on earth engaged in insatiable wantonness. Must one deny Christianity in such service? I mumbled in bewilderment, still unsteady at the revelatory displays. Never. The early Christian Adamites, to initiate their sacred orgies, prayed together. And before extinguishing the candle, recited the good Lord's instruction. Go forth and multiply. The yellow acacia blossoms below were bursting in full flower. The haze of pollen like fine clouds. I stood and wavered, lacking any indication of my role in the night, thinking only of the tempting bedroom. Vermilion distracted me. Rhodopsis, the courtesan, celebrated throughout Greece, was a fellow slave of Aesop, the fable writer. She was rumoured to have built a pyramid from her encounters. She cast irons to roast whole oxen for the offerings at Delphi. She was redeemed for a vast sum by Caraxus, brother of Sappho, the poetess of Lesbos, and who traded in lesbian vine. At this cryptic aside, my imagination smouldered, and I detached myself toward the bedchamber. Hesitating only to seize the Mennonite Bible left upon the desk. It was not an illusion. Vermilion walked closely nearby, still the historian. There was a Devadasi, or ritual female prostitutes in Hindu temples, in honour of the Babylonian goddess Mylita. I long had ceased to ask academic questions, becoming more mute and dark. But Vermilion intercepted and managed me easily. He had seen these reactions in others. The black leather Bible was bookmarked with a ribbon. I opened the gilt-edged leaves and found a note, upon which was scribbled a list. One, alcohol. Two, morphine. Three, cocaine. Four, methamphetamine. Five, six, seven.
Vermilion watched as I studied the note in the guise of a drug policy analyst. Returning the paper, I saw beneath the blue ribbon a portion of revelation. And there came upon me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. I closed the book, finally comprehending that Vermilion and his companion stars did not trifle in pleasures, but practised an esoteric art of medicine, arguably the most fundamental healing. Their exquisite erotic devotions were not indulgences, but religious conduct. I collected myself from unbridled dreams, humbled and respectful. V1 and V2 reappeared, this time in ankle-length black robes with caftans. We silently partook of sliced fruits and yogurts and nuts and became grounded in our bodies subdued from the events of the early evening. I could only await their direction. With little discussion, we removed to two vehicles, identical black Mercedes in the manor courtyard. The women led in one car. As a habit from a previous life, I could not help but notice their license plates. Oddly, they were C.H. Confederatio Helvetica, Swiss. Our target tonight is a young woman cocaine addict, he remarked. A clerk at the former Stasi headquarters, now part of the Bundeskriminalamt, the German Federal Police. We tailed V1 and V2 as they filtered toward the bombed-out bunkers and warehouses of East Berlin, near the former checkpoint Charlie, where those who ran for freedom were executed like wild beasts. We rode in the late Berlin blackness, down forbidding streets, derelict with the horrors of the Reich, arriving at an intimidating, destroyed pile, an underground venue with no name. It was packed with garishly tattooed skinhead thugs, with broad sinewy arms, and vests of rawhide. Platinum coiffed and rail thin, but bosomy dominatrixes, ghostly pale in severe leather coats with pointed collars like vampires, moved through the tawdry scrum. 
Groups of surly Moroccan dealers with evil looks trailed their victims, while excited German, Dutch and English girls slummed dangerously to solve their addictions. The pounding metal rock and growling low German dialects of Ramstein were deafening. Small bars dealt iridescent liquids and paper bindles with dragon stamps. Emaciated women with smudged eye makeup and the torn silk of heroin chic bound with ropes or handcuffs swayed languorously in elevated cages. As we entered the unworldly crush, every woman's eye followed V1 and V2. Towering over the Moroccans, both disrobed simultaneously. They revealed matching scarlet and ebony leather courses, pinching their already vanishing waists. Only their florid hips and tumescent nipples barely escaped the grip of tight leather against ivory skin. Their legs were satin to fearfully sharp and lofty heels. An impromptu and mesmerised entourage desperately followed their progress, too stunned even to speak with them. V1 and V2 produced short whips and passed easily through the crowd, standing for tantalising moments to graze lightly with their whips, the swollen breasts of a woman bound inescapably with ropes. She was inclined back against a huge Coptic cross, her arms and legs extended and forced apart with iron spreaders, gaffled to cuffs on her delicate wrists and ankles. A hooded, gnarled figure dripped hot beeswax from a thick, white, liturgical candle upon her reddening breasts as she twisted under the slow, stinging drops. Deeper into the caverns, among groups of men and girls in lurid pursuits, the huntresses searched for their patient. They moved relentlessly as the ribald shrieks of lost sirens sounded in the heat. The press of bodies like the pawing of restless stables. Within one isolated cave, dimly lit by guttering black candles, V1 found her. She was seated tearfully before several Moroccan coke dealers, 
the powder and craving evident. As they stood before her, trading lines for sexual favours, manhandling her youthful flesh and resigned lubricity. We were in some infernal bowl. One fixed his sordid eyes on V2, who responded by spewing loud and vile invectives in Arabic. The mood thickened with danger, like the smell of fresh blood. They all turned with menace, scowling, and rushed at V1. Shouting obscene commands from the brothels of Marrakesh, she flogged him mercilessly with painful strikes of her whip, demanding he kneel before her. He halted, staggered and confused, thinking it was dominance play by a brace of stellar lesbians who ravished the caves for white slaves. V2 placed one endless leg onto the seat by the girl, stretching her finely toned white thigh and her filmy black g-string close to her face. As V1 took the girl forcefully by the hair and pulled her back, blocking access to the men. The Moroccans dazzled by these salacious gestures, retreated awkwardly. They considered the extended stiletto points of their fierce heels, their ankle straps encrusted with diamonds beneath the flawless musculature of improbably long legs. Whispering in high German, V2 very gently brought up the girl's dazed eyes and kissed her bruised lips. Seizing the girl as their captive, V1 and V2 stormed from the cave. One Moroccan tried to follow, dissuaded by Vermilion and a burly doorman with bad teeth and a full facial tattoo of a grinning death's head. They kept her bound as we burst through the exit door into the waiting Mercedes. The girl, now with one shoe, craving more drug and expecting to be for the night an odalisk in some cocaine harem, Vermilion and I followed them to the manor. The captive seated tightly between V1 and V2. They covered her with a robe, their prize still bound and now barefoot. The trio flowing past the astonished but obesant footman. Vermilion pulled carefully onto the gravel sweep of the manor, 
and doused the lights. After observing the darkened suite become oddly roseate with some pale fire, Vermilion invited me, surprisingly, for a stroll in the garden. We passed at a funereal pace among the verdant foliage. Only the sweet's French windows subtly lit above us as stone gargoyles beneath the 17th century cornices protected the manor, grimacing with thickened lips and lavish fangs and tongues. They'll need a little time, he explained. Tell me of the procedure. They may bring her off the cocaine craving with small doses of NDMA, which we regard as glorified speed, with useful empathogenic properties for rare interventions. Once pre-treated and displacing the devilish sexuality of cocaine with a superior sensuality of NDMA, itself limited by its toxicity, will invite her introspection and awakening, if she wishes with a non-lethal classical psychedelic. They'll bathe her very slowly first, as a purification ceremony. With V1 and V2 as guides, her mind and body will become radiant after the transfigurations. What transfigurations? We moved in slow circuits toward the manor, ever vigilant. He finally spoke. We may hear them, but not see them. There was little evidence of their presence in the suite, save a crystal decanter filled with frappe of blueberries and three fragile champagne flutes, while the small steady flames of three equidistant votives in dark purple glass illuminated the centre. All the lamps had been draped with red silk, their harshness dimmed. The sweet appeared as a baronial rouge bordello, or a sanctum for the Epicurean erotic mysteries. Three sticks of sandalwood incense burned, curling into horizontal drifting vapours, while Song to the Moon, an aria from Dvorak's Rusalka, played with poignant air. Within this occult scene, there was a sense of some primordial teaching being handed down. 
A shower was running, and other sounds were muffled. I could not determine if mingled with the water were tears of joy or sorrow. Now in lucent shining robes, they appeared across the suite. Laughing gently, they were dancing like fairies in a courtly allemande. V1 began playfully stroking the girl's erect breasts. At this overture, she became quite serious, pouting and complacent, even as she grew more taut and excited. She stood very still, then shivered, stretching her legs firmly to receive more fully their incessant adorations. Now an eager captive, her growing cupidity and the jaunty upward tilt of her rosy tips flagrant before us. She was pushed and pulled in opposing directions by V1 and V2, until her prudence at being witnessed was overcome. She began quivering, responding to every touch with ever more heated indiscretions. V2 danced before her as an alluring moonlit will-o'-the-wisp, her opaline robes oscillating hypnotically. Panting heavily, the girl reached for her. At this frank admission of the girl's true erotic nature, they pressed her between their unattainable bodies and against a Louis the Sixth table, so that she either had to bolt or submit. Tantalised by magical sylvan nymphs on this night of nights, their mesmerising hands coaxing her dampening crevice. She, with a lavish swoon, yielded completely, shaking and loosening her thighs like later before a brace of white swans. Her hands gripped their backs. She began to plead. With heated kisses, they moved in dreamlike haste to the bedchamber. Vermilion and I remained, as the aria from Rusalka transformed into ecclesiastical chants from the cloistered nun Hildegard von Bingen. We managed to sip flutes of the frappe, finding some relief in the hypnotic liturgical glories. Vermilion's countenance was grim, for the girl's willing seduction was to be far more serious than an evening's sex. 
from the bedchamber. Lilting gasps of pleasure rose from the girl, until she began groaning with utter abandonment. Her intermittent cries became unintelligible, culminating in long, slow, heavy contractions. But to our concern, the frenzy mounted further, her lust becoming insatiable. She began to mutter, then shout, indiscriminate invocations, hysterical and begging in a rough voice, not her own, for even more wicked pleasures. She became lost in a frighteningly wanton delirium and invited the urgent thrusts of hooved satyrs it was as though some dark and winged creature of desire in the girl had been recognised and provoked and battled to be released. The rhythm of her initiation quickened over the hours. V1 and V2 began singing in plain song exchanges a 16th century Latin rite of exorcism from the Rituala Romanum. As the girl convulsed endlessly under the devoted ministrations of their hands and mouths and hips, they each sang a litany of the saints and lines from the Pater Noster. At the peak of her unquenched desire, they briefly conjured the princes of hell from her by the names Acheront, Astaroth, Magoth, Asmodeus, and Beelzebub. Then precipitated each wild climax by adjuring and driving them out with the sacred invocations of Emmanuel, Jehovah, Adonai. And it seemed the wordless tetragrammaton, the Hebrew name that cannot be spoken. They ceased only to repudiate with her in soft exchanges, the horror of addiction. Then again, fell into each other's clenching ecstasies. Their multitude of orgasms became seizures, thunderous waterfalls of light not of this world. The intensity of their spiritual intercourse, far beyond mere physical movements, Hours passed, but
but the sensual fascination of their entwined bodies and moaning prayers did not. In the exhausting early hours, Vermilion, trusting me now, elected to return to the garden for meditation with a volume of elegaic poetry. Leaving me alone to listen to this sensual conversation. I respected their path to the healing of an unfortunate, but could not remain seated. The bedchamber door remained slightly open. I walked silently, reverently just to glimpse for a moment the transfiguration of a soul being freed with the blessing of Eros. The tableau was illumined with lunar whiteness from the rising moon with one votive across the room. V1 and V2 clasped the girl acolyte between them moving as alabaster forms of living statuary, as though they were animated Elgin marbles. Their naked and licentious figures were outlined in ivory like a forbidden intaglio, their skin pale and white as honey. The girl, slim and yearning, was being transubstantiated as a holy Virgo intacta beneath two angelic succubi. Her cum face was beautific, turned deeply into a lush down pillow as she convulsively grasped silk and flesh. She was urged into erotic seizures by their long graceful fingers whose slightest gesture had the eloquence of blessings. Now supine, constantly caressed into voluptuous paroxysms, her back repeatedly arched at each fervent exhortation. She was twisting relentlessly to offer her tumescent breasts. Her exquisite ankles, porcelain in the moonlight, moved shamelessly in the perfumed musky air, rising and falling slowly like courtesans' fans, then circling in wide, low arabesques then flexing and trembling violently. At last, she began uttering one long syllable of worship, a roulade to a forgiving deity, its florid embellishments broken only by her drowning gasps and 
almost screened German phrases of elevated religiosity. In the deepest night, the beast at last had fled. Their happy voices became those of children, of virtuous schoolgirls, knowing they were finally safe and being deeply fatigued. I managed to fall asleep on a couch. Just before dawn, I half dreamed the trio stood before the French open windows, arm in arm, rapturously singing to the horned moon with its white aura. There was in the end, for all of us it seemed, a feeling of boundless peace, of infinite solace. I awakened in mid-morning to fresh blue hydrangeas and yellow roses in a pair of antique celadon, mint-green vases, by each end of my couch. Vermilion V1 and V2 and the girl were not to be found. Alarmed, I hastened to the bedchamber. The sheets were stripped. There remained only a great emptiness. The bleak absence of angels that perhaps never were. A Navajo smudge stick of sage had been burned, and the windows were all open. A recording of the sainted courtesan von Bingen still played quietly. The champagne flutes had been polished, as was every surface in the bathrooms. There were no fingerprints to identify them. No record they ever existed. I rang the major-domo and asked for the register of guests. The suite was in the name of Dr. Leopold von Sakomasok of Gestad. Obviously a literate ruse. Even the harpsichord keys had been wiped. Badly stung by their abrupt departure, but admiring their professional acuity. I grimly adjusted the jewel combination locks of my valise and opened it to prepare for my own urgent flight. Therein was a folded note, which I quickly put in my pocket. Below, upon my shirts, had been placed a little girl's feathered angel wings and a furry white halo. Behind my silent driver, en route to Tempelhof and down the Unter den Linden, I saw the Reichstag pass, then the burned skeletons of the Wilhelm Memorial and Nikolai churches destroyed by Allied bombing. 
They rose against the troubled sky like shriveled fingers from unkempt graves. The horses' manes and chariot of the Brandenburger tour receded above me. Their frozen grey images recalling the prophylia in Greece. Victorious forever. But from Berlin ever after, I remembered not the war, nor the howling Reich, nor the enslavement of innocence, but only their antidote, the Athenian ideal, the graces, the goddesses of mind. Only the note in my pocket remained. Upon opening it, the scent of Eau de Gavinci arose. Unsigned, in broad strokes of vermilion ink, was a fragment of Puccini's Madama Butterfly, an aria of Chao Chao San. It seemed for our interview a riddle of benediction, or commencement in this insoluble maze of desire and loss. I will return to the roses in the season of joy. Next, we have some commentary on the chapter by Gregory Sams. Gregory has been in the business of changing things since 1967, when, with Brother Craig, he opened up the market for organic and natural foods in the UK, moving through seed restaurant, shops, and two magazines to Whole Earth Foods. In 1982, he conceived and christened the original Veggie Burger, an idea that spread. Leaving food for fractals, he opened a shop devoted to new science chaos theory publishing and licensing fractals worldwide. Chaos led him to write two books, The State is Out of Date, We Can Do It Better, A Timely Look at How Well We Self-Organize in Freedom, and Taboo-Busting Son of God, Bringing Our Local Star Back In from the Cold. For more information, visit GregorySams.com. I'm really pleased that I was asked to review the audio recording of chapter 5 from the Rose of Paracelsus. It was an extraordinary book to read, but to listen to this chapter being so perfectly delivered, it was like a live movie in my mind of everything that was taking place. And it was the meeting with Vermilion, who introduced us to the realms of the sacred and the profane, accompanied by two extraordinarily beautiful women who love their work, and their work is seduction and lovemaking, infiltration, information gathering all part of the overall security network of the seven. 
And I was immediately caught by the, the detail. I mean, the type of shirts he wears, Vermilion wears custom Turnbull and Astor shirts. Now, I might have had, if he's ever failed to pick up one of the custom shirts that he ordered, I might have picked it up for a song at Turnbull and Astor's annual one-day sale where I accumulated a collection of their shirts, but I digress. And another advantage to hearing it was that when I was reading the chapter, I kept stopping to look up references to the obscure and the intriguing and the implausible at times, like this Christian sect, the Histrioni, who felt they had a double in heaven. And the more evil they were on earth, the more saintly and good deed-doing was their double in heaven. And they they tried as hard as they could to sin. I mean, yes, they existed. I tracked them down in a, it was a Google book. I couldn't find it the second time round, but I did when I was reading. And it was a you know, page, God knows what, of this obscure text. They talk about the history only. Um, mad stuff, but when I'm listening to it, I could just listen through because I, I know that these these references, they're all real. Um, other chapters in the book where where he describes a painting hanging in the side, a, uh, a place that is being visited, uh, that is the painting that's there. And uh, I, I can't believe how, how the memory of, of Leonard Picard for detail to write this book while incarcerated with no access to reference books of any kind, just drawing all this from his phenomenal and memory and his fertile description of what's going on that was so brought to life in the reading of this chapter. I feel like I've been to the movie. It's better than the movie, though, because it was all in my head, engraved in my memory. Some of these extraordinary, erotic scenes. Um, and the salvation of a, a woman from the crack den, or cocaine den in East Berlin, where... They saved her, but she worked within the German security forces, and they needed they needed somebody on the inside. And I believe I'm told all this happened, and uh, it certainly happened for me when I was reading this chapter. Um, hats off to all involved. Thank you again for tuning in to this episode of The Rose of Paracelsus. My name is Alexa. And I'm Kat. Onwards and upwards.
And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends. <laughs>